Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to Who the Fuck? A show that explores the power of human connection and the profound resilience of the human spirit through compassionate conversations that help you better understand yourself so you can live with the sense of peace, purpose, and joy that you deserve. Each episode offers a safe space for guests to share intimate details of their personal journey and lessons learned along the way as we all seek to answer life's most important question. Who the fuck am I? Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce and you're listening to Who the Fuck. And on today's episode, I'm sharing the mic with Lois Letchford. And Lois is the author of Reversed, a memoir, which serves as a beacon of hope, sharing the mission and vision of empowering individuals with dyslexia. She's also the founder of Lois Letchford Language, Literacy, and Learning Tutoring, dedicating her time to assist others who face challenges in learning. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Nikki. I'm delighted to be here. Absolutely. I am really excited to have you. I feel like our first conversation was really interesting to me, just sort of how your book came about. And I feel like that's a a really important jumping off point. Um, The way I do the show is so much more rooted in the human story. And a lot of times guests have books or certain content that they're promoting. And it's sort of the evolution of our lives, right? It's who who we are. And that's the whole premise of the show. But what I love about your story and your book is that it ties together your journey and the journey that you took with your son as you were trying to help him navigate a diagnosis of dyslexia. So um, yeah, could you just kind of share how you started on the path to get where you are? It was an unexpected journey. I mean, you send children to school and you expect them to do well. And I remember the year before Nicholas went to school where the reading teacher got up in front of the the incoming parents and said, you know, well, I'm the reading specialist. And my thought was, well, I, I won't have any problems. My husband's a professor. We won't have any problems with reading. What a mistake on my part. Well, you can't I, anticipate it, right? You don't know. I knew my son Nicholas was slow with language. I didn't know he was so far out of the ball game. And so when he went to school in grade one, day one, he was he was terrified about going. And he took a little insect that we had found to help him get to school. And I got to the end of the day and I said, did you show your teacher? He said no. And day six, I spoke to the teacher and I said, well, how's he going? And she just threw up her hands and said, well, I don't know how I'm going to cope with him this year. He's so far behind and all he does is stare into space. In hindsight, how I wish I had removed him from school that day. Um, Do you... Removed him from school and found a different way to educate him? Yes, but I had a three-year-old at the time and I knew Nicholas required one-on-one attention. And here you get into a battle with schools. If I had removed him and he had done poorly, which is quite probable, school would have said to me, well, you should have left him with us. Mm Mm-hmm. Instead, I left him with school. At the end of grade one, he's failing. And I asked for an assessment, and the assessment showed that he can read 10 words. 
he has no strength and he's got a low IQ. It ignored a few things. It ignored that he had wet his pants, he'd bitten his fingernails, and it stared into space throughout school that whole year. And it also ignored that the teacher had shouted at him. Additional problem, the testing, the IQ testing that he's done is all done on an understanding or a comprehension of language. And Nicholas had no comprehension of language. So when you've got this low IQ, school takes it as gospel provided, you know, God-given, child has a low IQ. And you can't refute it. There's nothing as a parent that you can say that can refute uh, something that's written in black and white. Yeah, because it's just the they're going to just default to this as the standard and this is how it's done. So what are you going to do about it? I mean, trust me when I say that if my mother were in this situation and has that same passion that you do for advocating for her children, like I I assure you that even if they told her that it was here, it's in black and white, she would have gone in like guns blazing. Uh, figuratively speaking, we were a weapon-free household. Um, but <laughs> she really, she really, right, it's that? important to specify because I grew up in the US, right? Um, but I think that, you know, it's, it's important to have that attention and that passion for your children in those scenarios and to challenge the systems as much as you can, but it doesn't change the fact that you can only get it so far. And I feel like schools, the legal system, government, like they all operate in some um, antiquated ways that prohibit the variety that's necessary sometimes for people to actually get what they need. I was slight shifting the topic, I was just thinking today about how we push these children to learn so much in first and second grade. And it's crazy. What for? You know, it's funny that you said that. So my sister, my niece just started kindergarten and she told me that they have two laptops because they don't trust kindergartners to have one at school that they have to bring home and get back and forth, which I, I can respect that point. However, my wife says, but what do they even need a laptop for? And I'm like, that's a really great question. Now I'm a nineties kid. I was born in the eighties, but like grew up in the nineties, early two thousands. So I'm still operating of the mindset of like my first many years of school, there weren't any computers involved in my life. So why would you need them now? And now I understand how much technology has changed and how essential it is in a lot of ways. But it begs the question, like as a kindergartner, where you're learning like foundational things, what is it that you specifically need the computer for? And so to your point, sorry, I know that's a little bit of a tangent, but it just really makes me think about when you're talking about like, well, how much do they need to learn at these ages? And also like, what should they be learning at these ages? And and the one thing that I think they should be learning, you know, by third and fourth grade is keyboarding. It's the one thing they don't do. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I, I feel like emotional intelligence is like number one. I would love to see them like, because the thing that you're speaking about with your son at such a young, vulnerable age too, is a teacher who didn't understand, who then reprimanded him and didn't know or chose not to address some of the other issues that he was facing and bringing attention to those to find a holistic approach and look at everything, not just, you know, a handful of the things that were happening. and. It's hard. I, I think if I'm trying to be as objective as possible, um, 
I imagine not everybody's equipped to do that. But I also think that as teachers or people in the education system and parents, like we owe it to children to like go that step further and try. The teacher would have been in her early 60s. She had a mother at home with dementia and the mother would call her up in the middle of the night. You know, so her life was um, not particularly complicated. It was complicated. Uh, This was 1994. She had died by 2001 or 2002. You know, we think we can do everything forever and we're living forever and she should have retired. Yeah, well, I I think that was the case with a lot of teachers in in my school growing up. Um, And, you know, my most impactful teachers, actually, I was just talking to my wife about this, um, were the ones who were younger and not because there's like a judge. Like I had good teachers who were older, but the ones that made you want to learn were the ones who weren't jaded. They were the ones who were new and fresh and felt like they were like still in it or they'd been there a long time, but they had like something to them. Like this was what they were meant to do. This was their calling. They, you know, they, that's what they signed up for. But there are a lot of people who just kind of throw in the towel and they're like, well, I, I've got my pension or whatever it is that like (laughs) they sign up for and, and they, they kind of coast as a lot of us do in jobs when we're not satisfied, right? Like I'm not trying to. Um, you know, shame people who are in uh, in an occupation that I would never choose personally. So like, I'm glad for the people who do it and are good at it and care. But like, much like other occupations, if you slack or you don't do the things that you need to do, then that ripples down to, in my life, working in tech, that's the customer. But like a child in the case of education is the customer. Well, the customers and this is the part that I find really difficult now. They're at the very beginning of their lives. Yeah. And we're, we're making an impact that lasts forever. Well, because zero through six is the most formative time in your life. And it's the thing that we can't remember. And it's where the most impact happens. So like you you said when we first spoke something um, about having brought to your son's attention, like bringing up a conversation about his experience as an adult, right? And that you didn't... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm veering off track. Go ahead. No, yeah. Let's change... I I want to tell you what happened next. Okay, go for it. then we'll come to that. Go for it. Because an unexpected thing happened. I said, my husband's a professor, and in the following year, 1995, he had study leave back in Oxford, England, which is where he did his PhD. So we all go. And while I'm there, I took Nicholas on myself and initially I took a series of books with me and I failed. I failed again. And my mother-in-law was with me and she said, Lois, put away what's not learning and make learning fun. And that was transformative in my mind and, and in my work. He's not doing this. What can I do? And I started to write simple poems for him. And the first day I did that, instead of Nicholas being stressed and shoulders up, he, he relaxed. And it was, this is okay. I can do this. He felt safe. And it was brilliant. Brilliant. 
And it's because one poem worked, I wrote another, 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 and just and I just kept writing and writing for him. And you come up with double O's, as in Cook, Look and Book. And I wrote about Captain Cook, the last of the great explorers. And Captain Cook had a notion there's a gap in the map in the great big ocean. He took a look without the help of any book, hoping to find a quiet little nook. And that and you're repeating these little poems again and again and again. And uh, while we're doing this, Nicholas eventually said, can I see Captain Cook's original maps? Question that blew me away and said, this child doesn't have a low IQ. And secondly, he said, who came before Captain Cook? And his smarty pants me said, well, that was easy, Nicholas. That was Christopher Columbus. And he said, and who came before Columbus? Now I'm flawed because I haven't even thought about these questions. And because we were in Oxford, England, we could find the person who came before Columbus, and he actually came in about 250 AD, lived in Alexandria in Egypt, and he never left the shores of Alexandria and wrote the world's first geographica, maps of the world. And because we were in Oxford, we actually found the book. Wow. Blows my mind. Okay. And and that was the start. And so we returned to Australia. I go back to see the diagnostician who had done the testing. And I said to Nicholas, ask these amazing questions. And she stood in front of me and said, Well, I've spoken to the reading teacher and he's gone backwards. And in fact, he's the worst child I've seen in 20 years of teaching. And I still struggle to say that, to say that in a way that's not nasty. And those words really pushed me because now I knew the testing was irrelevant, the teaching of what was critical and how I changed the teaching. I tapped into Nicholas's curiosity and his learning and he'd started, he'd made these steps. And the one thing I did in Oxford was help him learn and help him know that he could learn. And that was the big deal. Then the letters and sounds came and everything else came. Irrelevant. Uh, and that that statement by the diagnostician really just helped me push and push and drive and think, what else do I have to do as the teacher to help Nicholas learn? And I did Nicholas learn to read and write and become confident in the classroom. He had some phenomenal classroom teachers from second through to fourth grade. Phenomenal. And then uh, another big move, we moved from Australia to the United States in 1999 and Nicholas was 11. We moved to Lubbock, Texas, and we stayed there from 1999 to 2007 and Nicholas went from the bottom of class to the top. An amazing move. Another untransformative move and life is an experiment you cannot repeat. We didn't know what was going to happen when we went there and I could not have comprehended the huge jobs that Nicholas made during that time. What do you feel uh, changed so drastically with that move? Was it related to the education system? Was it what you were doing with Nicholas? Was it partially just like his advancing because he was getting older and understanding more? In my book, I call that section the spring in the desert, 
and th- and I identified nine factors that happened in Texas that would not have happened in Australia. And a lot of it was that Nicholas was reading and writing effectively. He was behind in his classroom. But being behind doesn't matter because he could take it in from the classroom. And that was one of the critical steps and various things happened. But there were nine factors that made a huge difference that would not have happened in Brisbane, Australia. And partly it happens because of the way we think of him. And in Australia, oh, Nicholas, he's done really well. We had no expectation that he would read and write. He's reading and writing. He's doing well. He's behind. doesn't matter. He's reading and writing. And in America, that mindset changed. He's a child who can read and write. He's just behind. He can do more. And then the school had the AR program, the Accelerator Reader program, which people hate. Nicholas bought into it and read and read and read. And then we started to listen to books on CD, and that was transformative. Because mm. every time we're driving, he's listening. And if you've got a problem with learning and language learning in particular, what have you got to have? You've got to have input. It's interesting, Lois, that you mentioned that too, because something that I struggled with when I was growing up was perceived to be reading comprehension. Um, So I was diagnosed with ADHD a couple of years ago, and I didn't understand that the way that I read is not how everybody else reads um, or or most people. Um, My brain, whatever it does, is basically sort of looks at a page, kind of consumes all the words and then starts like kind of filtering it into the proper sequencing and sentences. And so I can read fairly quickly and kind of speed read and pick up um, concepts. Doesn't work for all types of content, obviously. But what my mom really for years thought I had reading comprehension issues. And I'm like, I think it's just that I'm not like I wasn't actually reading all of it, you know. And so it was it's actually something that I never got to share with her because I didn't really understand it until um, after she had passed away or around the time that she um, had. And so when I think about things like that and what you're saying about how those those things that are so critical to our ability to succeed in the world the way that it's been created, um, when we deny that to students, um, and we sort of try to funnel them into this same path for everybody. Um, you know, we have advanced classes for people who are learning faster and we have remedial things for people who are maybe learning slower, but there's, I think also a lack of diverse ways of learning. It's not just the pace at which you learn or the amount of information you can consume because audiobooks. I can consume so much content through audiobooks and through documentaries, things that they could have tried to teach me a thousand times in school, but having a teacher tell me or telling me to read a textbook about it, it doesn't sit there. It doesn't stay. I need something that's compelling. And with ADHD, if it's not novel, new, or interesting, your brain's like, "Mm, no, I don't really want to do it. So I I can relate a little bit in that regard. Obviously, it's not exactly the same, but I I empathize for sure. You've said a lot of things there, Sorry. all of which are really good. And and when I'm teaching students, because of Nicholas, I became a reading specialist and I took on kids who'd failed all reading programs. And the first thing you said was, you know, I've got to be interested in it. And when we, particularly with remedial programs, we say, you're going to do this program, we forget the critical component of learning is engagement. 
number one step is engagement. Forget yes. everything else because if you're not engaged, you're not going to do it. You're not and going to do it well. <laughs> you're not going to do it. And it actually, it changes the way it goes into the brain. The brain is not making the, the connections it needs to make for you to do the, make, to retain it. Mm-hmm. Well, I, we were just yeah. talking about how the two, my wife and I were both students that op- operated with the mentality of memorizing a lot. And like, so stuffing it and flushing it, like get it ready for the test, pull it in, push it out, move on. I've learned more in my adult life since graduating college on my own accord because of the methods by which I learned, through which I learned. And in school, it was like, I just needed to focus on passing the test. Yeah. I, I, I'm The US system is particularly driven to passing the test. And the part that really upsets me about it is the teacher will, or the child gets 100% on the paper. Because they, the, they teach to the test. Now teach the test. And they've never asked, what did you learn by reading that? Oh, my gosh. You, would, you, you retain by reading that. Nothing. My mom would love you, Lois. My mom would have absolutely loved you. She would have had this exact conversation with you for sure. What I do with my students is take a book and turn it into a play. And what that does is stops you from just reading it. And you've every word counts. And you have to take it in and then you get this reciprocal stuff and you've got not only the way they're reading, you've got the, ex- why did they say that? How would they say that? Mm. And so you're taking in much more, uh, you know, but it's engagements first. I love that you just said that, though, about the play um, and the layers that it adds to somebody's ability to not only be engaged, but to learn. Because when you think about the dynamic in which somebody's saying something, the tone that they have, the emphasis that they're putting into things, like you're teaching them so much more than just the words on the page. I love that. Uh, you know, yeah. So <laughs> you're like, yeah, that's what I do. What are you, you going to say? Yeah, no, <laughs> you're right. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, it, it came, it came about for multiple reasons, but then I think I, my first student in Lubbock, Texas was 13 year old and spent four years in a phonics only reading program and came out unable to read anything and I knew my first step was engagement and how am I going to engage them is through turning a book into a play Mm. and a short story in particular the short stories have to be funny they have to be engaging phenomenal language unpredictable endings and it was transformative to that student and he's saying not only I can do that I want to do it and that's that's what I want my students to walk away with. I want to do it and I can do it. Yeah. And I imagine you brought that same sense of enthusiasm and confidence to your son, Nicholas, as you were going through this process with him. Oh, enormously. And, you know, it, it's uh, reciprocal. He's teaching me. I'm seeing this child who they said could do nothing. And when we were in Lubbock, Texas, I'm seeing this child work like the best student in the class. You know, he's reading for two hours a night. He's listening. And when we're driving, and in Lubbock, you drive for hundreds of miles. <laughs> Nicholas was the one saying, what book are we going to read? What book are we going to listen to? And the whole family gained from that. And as a unit, you remember which trip you went on and what books you listened to. That's so wonderful. I 
I have memories of like listening to stand up comedy on tape in my grandparents' car. So I I totally get what you're saying with that too. It's those things that are not tangible but really embed themselves in your um in your life and those and those familial memories. It's so yeah. beautiful to hear that that was something that also bonded all of you. Oh, all of us. Yeah. Okay. Now you said we'll take you back. You asked about Nicholas in his later life. Mm-hmm. This is this was fascinating to me because I have not stopped learning. Um, Nicholas graduated high school. He graduated uh, college or university with two honours degrees, and then in 2018, he actually completed a PhD in applied mathematics from Oxford University. Good for him. And after that, I said to him, Nicholas, I know nothing about what happened in first grade. I know very little, really. Can you tell me? And my son cried. He's confident. He's articulate. He's ambitious. And he cried. And not a word came out of his mouth. And that really impacted me because it's the first time I'm recognising the things that happened to us as five- and six-year-olds stay there for life. And we I hadn't dealt with it. And I hadn't helped him deal with it. And I just pretended it hadn't happened and shoved it under the carpet. And you can't do that. May I ask a question um, about that? So do you feel like, I mean, you, you addressed it in the ways that you could in terms of helping him advance and and learn and understand and be engaged. So I, I do feel like you obviously contributed a lot to that. Um, is your feeling in terms of sweeping it under the rug more of the recognition in retrospect maybe that you were so focused on just trying to help him get through it and move forward that you didn't necessarily address like the maybe the pain or the challenge emotionally that he was feeling during that time? Yes. And, you know, what I've learned since, I, I actually did some YouTube studies or YouTube Uh, videos on when learning is trauma Mm. and I've spoken to some experts on it and one first up learning is emotional as well as what we learn and and teachers don't know that or have ignored it and when we've got this painful experience like Nicholas had in first grade it actually doesn't go away it sits there in the brain and you do have to deal with it and it sits like a memory and when you hear something or see something it takes you right back to that six-year-old in the classroom it nothing magically disappears because you haven't dealt with it you know that it's just i i swear these episodes are always just they happen at the exact right times, Lois, because I, I've i been thinking about my own childhood experiences in school and things that have come back up and challenged me as an adult. And it's just, I think what's really amazing about what you're doing and what you've done for your son historically is you have a sense of accountability um, as a parent that is so important but it's also just very much on a human level of like wanting to understand the full impact of these experiences on your son um and also how that affects you 
And one of the things that I've realized in all the conversations I've had here is that recognition that, you know, we can keep shoving it under the rug. As you said, the analogy that I give is like you push it. It's like when I was a kid and I would clean my room, clean my room, air quotes, and I would shove everything I could under my bed. And I had a small twin bed and it doesn't fit a lot. It was a small room. And so it's like you keep shoving, keep shoving, keep shoving. You can only do that for so long. It's going to spill out onto the floor, right? So like at some point you have to go back in and actually really do the work. And I feel like for a lot of us, it's not until we get to that point where there's no more denying it that we actually take the step to do it. And so I think sometimes like with you and Nicholas, where you're in the experience and you're simultaneously navigating that trauma, but you're also needing to get to, you need to help him advance in his learning. Like that had to be the priority at the time. And so I think mental health and the way that we see trauma has changed drastically. Nicholas is a, is my wife's age. So a couple of years younger than I am. And it's like, I know that that wasn't a focal point. So I, I'm sure that you know this on a rational, logical level, but I'm going to say it as an objective observer of your experience. Um, I think be very proud of what you did to help Nicholas and also um, as best you can try not to carry the um, the guilt or the shame that goes with not doing everything because as I hear again and again in therapy is that you didn't know what you didn't know at the time, right? I didn't have the skills to help Nicholas. You had some of the skills. I had the skills to help him read and just accept, but I didn't have the skills to deal with the trauma first Mm -hmm. grade. And that's like, that's a big undertaking. I mean, you're talking about people who are in the field who don't even do that or know how to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for letting me go off on my little soapbox there, but I really... No, I really no, what appreciate you just what you said, did. said there, I think, was absolutely critical. We do keep shoving it under the bed and under the bed until the bed is so full, <laughs> nothing else fits, no matter how much. And that's when we break down. That's yeah. when we can't function. That's why it's important to deal with it. Yeah. I feel like my mom would also love that analogy now because she would really get on my case about my room never being clean. Yeah. So it's like, look at how well I've transformed that into an analogy in my adult life. <laughs> And and okay, and I'll continue with that story because when Nicholas cried, I knew I couldn't help him in that moment. But I just moved on and said, "Well, tell us what happened when you and I learned in 1995." And the the transformation was amazing because instead of tears, he's laughing and he named the poems I wrote. He said, "You wrote Mug of a Bub." Bug and Windmill on a Hill, so he'd remembered the poetry from 25 years ago. And then he went on and said, the learning about Captain Cook taught me to love learning and I never want to stop learning. That's how powerful that was. Uh, I, I, I have to interject. I know I keep doing this to you, Lois, but I just, I, I, I'm so compelled by your story. And I'm, what did that feel like to hear him say that to you? That was mind blowing. Absolutely mind blowing because I knew what I did was good. I didn't know it was that good. And I didn't know how important and how much we do as six and seven-year-olds can impact their life forever. And so we think teaching literacy is about decoding and decoding, decoding. We've got to teach kids to decode. It's far more than decoding. Yeah. Thank you for 
Thank you for answering that. I just, I, I, what a humbling and beautiful moment between a parent and their child to have that. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I hear he is at the top of the world in Oxford to say that and to recognize that's where, because here's the other part, the other challenge is if we had, if I had kept him in school and not had this experience in this city that provides all of the artifacts and every time you turn a corner, there's something else going on, you know, another building that's X, Y, and Z, you know, Galileo was here, not Galileo, tell a lie about that, but um, um, Haley's Comet was there and there's plaques to them and plaques to Hook and Boyle and all these people and, and my husband knew or has all this knowledge. And so everywhere we're going, Nicholas is hearing that. So that experience was transformative and really rare. But if we had stayed in Brisbane, Australia, I would have been told your child is dumb. Your child cannot learn. And that's the contrast that still blows me away. Wow. Uh, So something that hasn't come up yet, which I think is very important to your story as well, is that as you were navigating this journey with Nicholas, you came to the realization that you also have dyslexia, correct? Yes. Is it is is it have dyslexia? Is that the correct As, way of saying it? Present tense. Okay. Present tense. Okay. But I, I just wasn't sure if it's like um, when people have different um, learning challenges or is it even yeah. neurological, I'm, yeah. I presume, um, yeah. like the right way to phrase it. And I just want to make sure. So it's it would be has, have dyslexia so you you deal with dyslexia (laughs) say it that way um and you didn't know this until you were teaching Nicholas is that correct 39 years old for the first time I reckon no wonder why I've struggled I found this little book in the uh the children's bookshop in Oxford and it had uh 20 symptoms of dyslexia or I had 17 of them and I had a really good marker my younger sister she's two years younger than me did things before me and you notice it in fine motor coordination Mm. telling time I couldn't do it and embarrassed when someone asked me the time and I couldn't tell the time inability to distinguish left and right and I would I'm a classic word blind person and word blindness doesn't fit it stop at words you know I was looking for the blackberries this morning in the fridge and I couldn't see them so So can you explain to me and for listeners as well, I know a bit about dyslexia, but can you explain a little bit of like what the common sort of ways that it manifests are, at least like kind of most commonly or how it did, how it did for you and for your son? Okay. For me, um, I could read words. I couldn't comprehend. And I got through school because I could read words and I worked hard. No teacher recognized that I couldn't comprehend until about sixth or seventh grade. And then you just, then you just, uh, was it mostly memorization then to get, to get through it? Yes. Yes. A lot of memorization and a lot of work. That was for me. I mean, a lot of people, um, vary in their symptoms. And then Nicholas was far worse than I had. But Nicholas has hearing issues. And the hearing issues impact all sorts of um, phonemic awareness, which is foundational for learning to read, you know, the the ability to distinguish between the sounds. 
Is it audio processing disorder of some sort? Yes, definitely order processing. However, you know, particularly with Nicola and our family, the brain with auditory processing shrinks the language component because he wasn't hearing for a long time. He had ear infections from 8 to 18 months and you're not getting the language input. Oh, wow. He was doing puzzles at the same time. So his brain in the puzzle component is expanding enormously. That's still growing but the hearing is really low. So he gets tested when he's doing his um, undergraduate degree and on phonemic, not on uh, spatial awareness and pattern recognition, he sits on the 99th percentile. On phonemic awareness, as a 21-year-old, he's on the second percentile. Which, which awareness did you say? Phonemic awareness, Phonemic. the ability to distinguish sounds and to break words up and all that, he's second percentile, two out of 100. So he's got this enormous discrepancy and that he lives with forever. And that's a struggle. Mm. Because what do people see when they talk to you when you first meet a person? You don't see the strength in spatial awareness. You're talking to him. He's slow. You've asked him a question. What's your name? And he stops and thinks about it. So he doesn't look smart. But he's obviously proven that he is. Are there things that we can do to better support people who are dyslexic that we are not doing that wouldn't take away from what exists now, but would just add an extra layer of convenience accessibility that would allow fewer diagnoses um to be so impactful that it would give people more opportunity to grow because like we're accommodating that what i do know makes a difference and that it's my understanding of the way we read is that abstract words are far more difficult for uh, dyslexic people to understand and comprehend what do you mean by an abstract word okay uh you know you've got nouns Mm -hmm. face eyes ears you can touch them verbs Action words, verbs are action words. The verbs to be, is, are, was, word, have, had, be, being, being. What are they? Yeah, there's not like an action that goes with it. So like, it's not running, it's not drinking, it's something that, yeah, okay, I get it, it's abstract. <laughs> it's abstract. They cause significant difficulties. And actually what I've done a lot of work with are pronouns because he, she, they, them, it, the very simple words to decode. What we as the reading community forget is the actually incredibly difficult words for children who struggle with literacy. Interesting. Because every time you come to he or she or it, you as the reader know you have to do something about it. Children who are dyslexic or struggle with literacy read the word, and we don't. And because they've read the word, we've assumed comprehension has happened, and it often hasn't, because the distance between the word it and it's what we call the antecedent varies. And I did this with a very simple book with three kids who are in third grade, and it's um, a hard stork. Stork pecked at the egg, but it would not break. And then the next page is 
elephant stamped on it, lion bit it, a chimp hit it, and it goes on and on and on and on. Very simple book. For, it's a book for, for children who are one. And I got to the end of the book and I said to my students, well, what's the it? They stood in front of me, sat in front of me and go, it, it's nothing. And so you realise that the comprehension component has gone. They haven't got oh. it. Wow. Which is why you go back to acting it out. Stork pecked at the egg, pecked at the egg. She pecked at it, but it would not break. Ah, they say when you've done that. World changes. Wow. 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 I feel like <laughs> you. This is like blowing my mind, Lois. I, my wife and I have talked about writing some children's books. Um, and this is something that I'm going to take away from this conversation because I want to make sure that anything that I do in that capacity for children or otherwise, but um, particularly for young children who are learning to read and comprehend, is to make sure that. It's being written in a way that gives them the best chance at understanding it. Thank you for sharing that. That's so informative. I've actually, I've written a paper with Professor Tim Rosinski and it was published in The Reading Teacher on that topic. Can you share a link with me for that if you have yeah. it? I would love to it's read that. I'll send, the, I'll send you the whole article. I would love that and I will put it in the show notes for anybody else who wants to read it. I I'm really amazed by how much energy and effort you've put into this, Lois. Uh, you obviously have such a passion for it and such a dedication to it. And literacy is something that right before my mom passed away, my dad said she had been talking about wanting to um, volunteer to help adults read who didn't know how. And it's something that I really wish she would have been able to have the time to do. Um, but even just knowing that she considered it, uh, as part of what she wanted to do with her retirement was just such a really beautiful thing to recognize how passionate she was about it. Because growing up, like, I think because I struggled with comprehension, that it was it, comprehension and focus, um, that it was harder for me to, you know, dive in and continuously read books. My mom, my sister, they were such avid readers. And it's just, it didn't pull me in the way that it did with them. But the thing that I value so much is storytelling. And that can happen in so many different ways. And what you're talking about with helping children read or helping people read by um, inviting them to act it out as if it is a play and bringing them into that in a way that is more palatable and easier to digest and learn and understand. Like those are the unique things that we need to be sharing the messages of hope that we need to bring to the forefront because it's like if something's not working why would we keep it the same way we do we I, it blows my mind how dumb we are now it's not dumb no i mean as a species i feel like it's an evolutionary fail <laughs> <laughs> certainly because we go in with such fixed ideas about who's doing what i mean you know it's fascinating i remember nicholas asked a question we'd been to oxford we're back in australia and he's learning and he said to me what would have happened to me in captain cook's day and i was able to say nicholas you would have been fine not everyone learned to read and your skills would have shined through 
Well, I mean, to to that point, there is a lengthy history of people who are not literate and um, having successful lives, especially when learning to read was limited to certain people. Um, I mean, I think in some ways, sociologically, that's still true, but it was like very intentional that people weren't being given things to read. They didn't want people to expand their knowledge. They didn't want women to be able to read because then we'd know what was up, right? <laughs> we didn't want anyone to first learn to read first. Yeah. And then it was women. Then it was, uh, you know, the black people. We can't let them get their hands on books. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's just absolutely absurd. And then it's like, and and something that really resonates with me also about your story, Lois, and and your advocacy for Nicholas is my best friend, Jen, she has a son and she has three children, but her eldest son um, has ADHD and um, I believe dyslexia as well and a couple of other diagnoses. And it's like, I watched her fight tooth and nail for over a year with the school to get him the proper evaluations and the proper accommodations to make sure that he could learn and effectively learn. And it was just shocking to me how much people were just kind of kicking the can or punting it to somebody else and being like, oh, well, that's not my problem to deal with now. That's yours. And it's like, she is a single mother who runs her own business and has three kids under the ages of 10. If you are telling me that this person can't get like an evaluation for a child who clearly needs assistance so they can continue to grow in their education, then like, what are you doing? Like, what is, what is, where are you adding the value? Because I would hope that, especially in a public school system where the school districts are good, where we grew up, like you have the resources. What that tells me is that you don't care enough to try. And it's hard when you have to rely on people who aren't, going to put forth that effort because they're not sitting there saying my hands are tied. They're saying like, we'll get to it when we get to it. It blows my mind. It's why I wrote my book that you have to be almost, excuse me, white, extremely privileged uh, to take a child from non-reading to reading. Because we were sitting, you know, we were in the best school district in Brisbane, Australia. We were at the school that everyone wanted to send their child to. Why? Because they were all academics and the results were good. You know, that's why the, the results were good. In, from second grade onwards, we had brilliant teachers. But to, for Nicholas, the reading teacher was not good enough. And she didn't have enough knowledge to deal with Nicholas. And heaven forbid if you have got any more strikes against you because you won't get it. I mean, I'm just horrified at how much work I had to do to get Nicholas to read. And on one occasion, I got tired of doing all the work after school. I sent work from home to school to say, this, really to say this is what I'm doing, and it blew the teacher away. Yeah, what I did blew that teacher away, and now it's my first lesson I use with older students. When you say blew the teacher away, do you mean like she was shocked that it was effective or she was upset that you did it? A shock that it was effective, that it was so engaging, that it engaged so many children in the class, uh, that it was a totally different way of thinking. And the kids loved it. And when they're loving it, they're learning it. 
That's, it's amazing. I, did they implement like these things that you brought to their attention for future use cases? I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know. I, I feel like this is the part too that I struggle with as an onlooker because I don't have children. So what I see and experience of the school systems today is what I hear from my friends and family. And I think that, you know, as with many things, especially in the States, there's a lot of drive to make decisions based on other people's whims, not what's actually best for the the children. And when you come in and you have an effective way of helping them and their response is not to find a way to scale that, to implement it more, it's supremely disappointing and frustrating. I have to 100% agree with you because that's how I feel about my book and the results of my book and the results of my teaching that people don't want to hear from me. So I actually was wondering, because you were talking about the poems also that you had written for Nicholas when he was younger. Have you ever published those in a book? No, I haven't. I kind of feel like you should. Um, <laughs> this is completely unsolicited, but um, I I think that it, if it was really effective for him, and that's a way to help engage and entice um, educators to engage their students, then I say go for it. I mean, you can self-publish pretty easily. I feel like that could be, a, it's like a quick couple pages, maybe throw some illustrations in there. I don't know. But I am I feel like that could be really amazing because the, what you just recited very briefly, I assume from memory, um, was lovely. and I feel so inspired by the fact that you had this inherent, you know, recognition that this could help and you now have proof, right, that it works. So, um, yeah, it would just be great to see if that would be something that could also accelerate. I know you're currently trying to, um, you know, promote the book that you do have out, obviously, yeah. <laughs> um, two very different stories uh, or, or types of content, right? Um, with your memoir, do you do you feel like I, when we originally spoke, um, I asked you kind of who your audience was or who your hopeful audience was for the book, and you had said um, people who potentially were in similar situations to yourself or Nicholas. Um, but I also see it as an opportunity for people who don't really know much about dyslexia or the way this system is sort of broken and and leaving students a little bit out to dry. Um, I feel like it could be really informative in that way too for anybody who's listening. Yes, I totally agree. Um, I, the thinking of publishing stories for Nicholas, Nicholas's poems. Um, the poetry for Nicholas was particularly for him and we had a background of seeing the things that we were writing about mm. and that was the critical part. So it's not just the poetry, it's the two. So I now have a six-year-old boy. He's from Bangladesh who came with and couldn't read a thing. What did I do? I had him, I failed a while for one week. I had him make a bat. In fact, the first poem was, uh, my name is and I am a boy. I am not a cat. I am a boy. So you got repetitive stuff. They, these are the things that I wanted to publish because it's reading, it's poetry, and it's an activity. 
Well, I was going to say, because if you're if you're wanting them to engage and have something that they can retain that's relevant, because that's the word you used earlier, right? It's like, is it relevant? And that's super important. That's right. And it's got to start with them. And the next one is I made a bat. You do the same thing. My name is and I made a bat. And then we talked about the bat. And then they've got the bat in front of them. So they know they've made a bat. They know what it does. And then you go to YouTube and check out what real bats do. Mm. And then I made a bat. I made what it was the second one we made. I made something else. Um, I made a bat, didn't make a cat, but we made something else. And again, there's an, there's poetry about this with that similar rhyme, that similar pattern. And he, by the end of it, he's going, I can read this. And then we take all these sight words, the is and the are and the was and the were and all. And he can do it. And he could, and he said to me, the first week he said, I don't like this. And I said, I know. And by the time I've left, he says, I feel happy. Less than three weeks. Wow. And that's the big deal. That's you know, a huge it's, deal. yeah, it's to take this child from I can't do it to I can. And that's the thing I'm working on publishing now. Because and I want to, right? I can't, now I can, and I want to. Exactly. Exactly. And I want to. Yes. That's so that good. was really exciting. So that's what I'm working on. Look, just a minute. There's my there's my caterpillar. Oh, I love it. <laughs> That's fun. On. Yeah. So, you know, all of those things and he's going to hurt his leg and then you've got the rhyming words. You've got the patterns that are coming up that are so critical for children to see in language. Yes. Yeah. So. Now that your, um, you know, your book is out and you're also, um, you have your business, so you're, you're, teaching literacy and helping coach essentially um, people through this part of their lives. What do you see as um, like, do you have an ideal sort of goalpost that you're going towards or is it primarily raising awareness to help facilitate a broader change? I, the second. Yeah. I'm too old to do a lot of work now and I've got a grandbaby who I've got to do some babysitting for. And which is just gorgeous to do. And this field is littered with so much disinformation. Mm-hmm. Really, you know, I think that's the first that I couldn't, I'm too tired. And I had a skiing accident and wrecked my shoulder. And no, I didn't. I shattered my collarbone and then the doctor wrecked it. <laughs> and it's really impacted me and made me quite tired. Mm-hmm. So I do what I can. I You're right, but it's advocacy that we can teach children to read. And it's more than just teaching decoding and that social emotional wellness is critical for learning success. Absolutely. Well, as we're kind of rounding out the conversation here, I'd love for you to share your thoughts on that because I know you said um, when we originally met and then also just kind of reading in preparation for our conversation, just that mindset is really important and being able to come from a place where you are open to it and also um, have a positive outlook on it is really helpful as you're going through the process. So could you share a little bit about just sort of your philosophy on that? When you see a child that struggles with literacy, instead of saying they are learning disabled, 
you saved our future rocket scientists because it changes the way we think about them and it allows us to do the changes to help them to read. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I want people to know above all, that when a child is struggling, there's no correlation between ease of learning to read and IQ. No correlation. And we have to teach them to read to just cope in our world and cope in a place where we have documented and instituted these children must go to school for at least 10 years. I mean, when I did When Learning is Trauma, some of the stories that people were telling me just made me cry because we're putting children there and letting them fail every single day of their lives and expecting them to then cope as adults and live fulfilled lives. And not have just perpetual self-doubt and ridicule, like just a terrible internal monologue. Yes. Yes. I mean, I think about the things that affected me as a kid. I mean, literally in therapy currently working through things from my childhood, from being bullied and the self-worth issues that I have as an adult with that. And the first thing to like getting on a path of sort of writing that ship, so to speak, is recognizing it. And that self-awareness is so important, but it's not something that comes organically for a lot of people. Like we have to be very intentional about it. And so that mindset shift is so critical to getting to a place where you're actually ready to grow also. Yeah, yes. And the more we can do to support children in the earlier years of their lives, the easier the later years are. Uh, or yeah. the, not not so much easier, but it's your under-the-bed metaphor again coming out that when we've shoved everything under it and it's overflowed, that all takes up space in our brain. Yes, totally. And our body. And our body. It, 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 yes, you're right. You can't separate the two. You cannot separate the two. And whatever it is, and then we make it better or worse, uh, you know. Uh, so how what I'm thinking. How, yeah. how do you feel um, writing the book was able to help you process your own story um, throughout your journey? It was the first time I was able to put it all together. Uh, about the struggle that I had in school and how really teachers were just so mean at times. And recognising too, my mother, who is still alive and now has dementia, would have been dyslexic. Wow. She would always say, you know, I, um, what did she say? I didn't do well in school. I loved athletics and I loved tennis, but I didn't do well in school. And watching her grow and seeing the things that she was brilliant at and how she approached various teaching tasks because she would teach Sunday school, you realise my mother was dyslexic. So my mother had it, I have it, Nicholas had it. Wow. Well, you've all all managed to raise children who have done incredible things with their lives, so that's really something, isn't it? I hope so. I've got two out of three. I've got the third one with me and I'm working with him now. Oh my gosh, Lois, this has been just such a pleasure chatting with you and learning more about your story. I really, I please to the listeners, like check out Lois's book. Um, If you want to learn more about her, you can visit her website. It's loisletchford.com, correct? Yes. Yes, it is. 
Is there anything else that you'd like to share or um, anywhere else you'd like to tell listeners to follow you? Um, I've been a bit slack (laughs) with work and injury and that. So just contact me through my website is the best if you have any questions. And I willingly talk to anyone and everyone about the importance and the power of teaching children to read early in their lives. I love it. Lois, thank you so much. I I really, really appreciate your vulnerability and your insightfulness. I am walking away from this conversation with just probably more questions and research to be done, but also a great sense of just gratitude for what you have taught me here in this conversation. So thank you for putting your knowledge and willingness to help others out there uh, and being a guest of the show. I really appreciate you. Thank you, Nikki. And I look forward to meeting you one day. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Who the Fuck. And if you like what you hear, share the show with your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else you think needs a healthy dose of introspection and raw authenticity. Feel free to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. It's always appreciated. And you can also visit whothefck.com to keep up to date with what's new in my world and for exclusive bonus content. Electric Acid. Welcome to Tuning In to Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonise your mind, body and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning In to Sound Wellbeing today. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed.